This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning, whether you're listening live or on the podcast. This is the Friday morning break with John Gibbs. And my guest this week, Professor Victoria Shuinmi from University College London. And we are going to discuss her work on everyday racism and sophisticated racism as it applies to education and the workplace. I hope you enjoy our discussion. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back as the music dies away with my guest, Victoria Shunmi from UCL in London. And well, uh, Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Now, before we get started, I'm just going to share with our listeners that you're about to do some stand-up comedy. Oh! <laughs> you didn't expect me to ask you about that because we got into much more serious matters in a minute. <laughs> uh, I am indeed. Um but I'm 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 still learning. I'm doing baby steps, very very much baby steps. So um, yeah. <laughs> the reason I invited you onto the Teachers Talk Radio, um, and you were good enough to 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 come to agree to this interview, is because of the writing and the research you've done uh, on on a wide range. You've published a great deal of material on the issue of racism and the experience of uh, black women particularly and girls the first question I, sp- I suppose I, if, if we move away from how you got into stand-up comedy but what led you into this area of research you're a lecturer in education but what led you into the area of of research in particularly this field yeah that's a good question thank you John I mean I'm an associate professor so um, I suppose what I'm I was very interested in is be, it's it's come from my background. And so I was somebody who was raised by white German Jewish parents in um, the West Country. Particularly, I started off in Devon and then moved into Somerset. Um, and, and that, I suppose, being brought up by Jewish parents from the age of six months really provided some complexity around identity. And, and I think that's been quite exciting to my journey of understanding difference. Um, and I think that's the starting point, yeah. Yeah. And then I suppose the next question is that if, you, if your experiences lead you in, the, in this direction, how do you go about this research? I mean, I know that you've written recently on uh, the, the experience of, of racism, sophisticated racism, everyday racism, with uh, Dr. Carol Tomlin. And for a start, what's the, what's the sort of methodology of that research? How do you go about that? Um, I suppose I'm very interested in lived experience. And I'm also interested in um, storying, which is narrative, and really finding out about people and their stories and what they have to say. Now, some people might think, well, that's not really research. But within the work I'm doing, I'm also looking at concepts. So the book you just mentioned is a conceptual book. And it's about the whole concept of sophisticated racism and what that means. So it draws on theory, which is already out there. But I then develop it in a conceptual framework to be able to have a conversation which brings in the lived experiences and the stories. I suppose that's a very simple way of of saying the kind of work I do. I, I, I do focus on gender and I do focus on race and, and I bring those both of those together as an intersectional approach because I'm a woman who is black and you can't take that away from much from that particular um, aspect. Yeah, and I was talking with, uh, I just ran my daughter to the railway station and I said, well, she said, who are you interviewed today? And I was talking to her about this and she said, well, the, the danger will be with an interview like this is that you, Dad, will try to explain things in an area where you have no experience. 
And I said, well, there, there, there must be some degree of intersectionality in between things like class, of which I can experience. I went to a comprehensive school and I live in Britain, so I will have experienced that. And there must be some intersectionality between gender and, and, and so on. So I will, I can at least have some sense of that. Um, but isn't, is, there, is there a problem that you, are, when you talk about issues of race and racism, it, it's very difficult for people to be to, to 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 know where you're coming from in a sense if they're not if they have don't have that lived experience. It is complicated, and it's complicated for somebody like myself because I grew up in a very upper class background. So where lots of people their first reference, if I if I think about the UK, um, they would be thinking about they they go they're. they're their um, default position is working class linked with black communities. Yes. And they don't stand back to think, well, actually, we're not a homogenous group. So within that, there's going to be people which come from all different classes, all different classes. And then you're going to have people like myself, who has been raised by white, German, Jewish, very upper class parents, which... I may not have as much in common with a white male who's from a comprehensive school or a black male who's from a comprehensive school. And the two may have more in common with each other than I do mm. because of my because mm. of my background and what, what I've positioned where I've been positioned. So I think your daughter's right in some ways, but I think you're right as well. Because it is about how you position and I think I've had the conversations with, with people at, at, at dinner at times and I've had more in common with a white male who is from the same background as me, class background, than I have with a male who's not. Mm. So I think that is something which we don't talk about because the murkiness is the murkiness of difference. But when you're, when you're exploring a topic like this and you say, well, I'm get, the way I'm going to explore it is through the lived experiences of, of individuals, and yet uh, you must also be looking for the kind of universals. So there's a tension there in what you've just said, in a sense, between everyone's own personal experience. Someone might say to you, well, that, that what you're describing there is that we all have our own road to, to, to tread. And yet there must be something universal as well that is say, well, yes, but you didn't tread this road and, the, and only people with this colour skin <laughs> can experience exactly. this and they share that with me. Absolutely. So if we look at, for example, people talk about women and the glass ceiling. And you think, yep, yep, it's about the women and the glass ceiling. Well, white women, it's the white, it's the, it's the glass ceiling. Whereas black women, it's not the white ceiling, the, the, it's not the glass ceiling at all. It is actually the um, concrete ceiling. And I say that because of, um, a, a, a white woman who is talking about the fact of the barriers and the lack of progression. And they can see through the ceiling and they can see upwards. And they feel, how do they get through there? Whereas a black woman, it's a concrete ceiling because you're trying to look and you can't see anything through it at all. It's completely concrete. So there you've got two things, two different things. The gender, yes, they're both women, but one can see the see clearly, but they can't get there because there's things in the way. The other one can't even see through the scene because it's just concrete on top. So I think that's a good, good analogy. And then also, if you're looking at other women as well, some marginalised groups will talk about the sticky tea, the sticky ceiling, where you try and you get stuck to it and you can't move away from it. So you've got the sticky ceiling as well. UK is just two weeks away. Are you ready to join 30,000 attendees, 600 plus exhibitors on seven content stages from 120 countries and see Louis Theroux, Dame Darcy Bustle, Jason Arde, Laurel Carner, Baroness Fluella Benjamin, Dan Fitzpatrick, Mr PICT and so much more. I might need to bring my trainers. The best part? Educators go free. Get your ticket now at uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration.
This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit eatonx.com to find out more. listening to the Friday morning break on Teachers Talk Radio with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Dr. Victoria Shuinmi, Associate Professor at the University College London. We are discussing sophisticated and everyday racism. You must encounter, I would, I would wonder, you mentioned talking to people at dinner, and you must encounter that sense in which people say, well, I don't, you know, I don't know, but I, I am, I'm, I'm not racist, and indeed I am colourblind. I, I see all humans exactly the same. And therefore, and I think that, and they might well say to you, I'm educated, and most people feel this way, so I don't know that racism is, is an issue. And of course, then, then if you say, well, yes, but... You, the, there is, a, there is a thing, that unconscious bias, unconscious racism, and so on, everyday racism. Well, that, that's going to... In almost you're telling them that, that they, 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 they may be experiencing... They, they may not be able to experience the thing they're trying to understand. I'm not sure if I managed to get a question there at all. Yes, well, absolutely. So you, you, you touched on something really which is very sophisticated because most people which I engage with are very liberal. and they would be horrified if you turn around and say to them, well, actually, you know, some of the tendencies that you display are perhaps uh, rather racist. How could you say this about me? I go on all the demonstrations. I do this. I do that. I do that. I can't tell. Well, it's not about you. It's about perhaps some of the things you do which you're not consciously aware of or you didn't actually know that contributed to racism. Because it's perhaps rather more invisible, some of the things, some of the things you may ask. You might, it could be that you're in a, I don't know, you're doing something together and you straight away take on the role as the privileged white female. And um, without even understanding that the person with the experience in the room is not you, but it's the other person. And it's when you and so when you get called up and you say, called out and and you say to the person, well, actually, you know, I I'm the one with the qualification, not you. Then their whole notion of guilt comes in and, and the and the and the guilt for tears and the defensiveness and a whole range of other things. And all you've really done is say, well, um, it's not actually you with the experience; it's me. Um, and and I think that's where the conversation. And what happens is you're you. Are met, you, you have to make yourself feel small all the time so the other person is able to feel big. And that happens in schools mm. where you, 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 you do, if you're kind of exploring things with young black girls, they're always dumbing down, dumbing down to be smaller than their white girls, as an example. Because mm. if, you're too, if you're too tall or you're taking up too much space, it creates an issue. 
It creates an issue in your friendship groups and it creates an issue in the classroom. Because people want you to be, they know you're visible, but they want you to be invisible. And it's how you kind of shrink yourself to be able to be invisible. And it's very interesting mm. to watch. And it's also to observe with, with this kind of thing. Well, I'm glad you made the link with the classroom there because obviously this is this is teachers talk radio and our audience is primarily educators. Yes. I'm a retired teacher. And so in that sense that schools, one of the themes of my show is what schools are for and so on. And there's a tendency for us to talk about schools in terms of delivering the skills society needs and so on. But whether we like it or not, schools are also attempting to uh, confront some of the problems of society. They are, they are social engineering institutions. We, we, you know, people say that they shy away from that idea, but they are. They've always been that. Yeah. And in the se- in that sense, how do you, how do you, <laughs> when you talk to a teacher, say it's it's po- there, there are things you do, there are things students do, but there's also the education system itself and the structures that is what you're teaching. For instance, there's the curriculum itself and so on. There are so many ways in which you could observe this structure of of racist attitudes, racist bias. How do you how do you alert teachers to this? It seems to be an, an enormous uh, task. It's a huge task, especially when you're looking at racial profiling. Hmm. And when you're thinking about racial profiling and what that means. Now, if you've got a young black girl who happens to be rather tall, could be verging onto six foot three, and they're in school, they're taller than most people, even the boys, depending which whether it's year six, whether it's year twelve or thirteen. But most of the time, they're going to be taller than most people in their school until they get to about year thirteen. And some of the boys then are taller, are the same height or much taller than them. But six feet, six foot three is quite an established height. All right, I'm not saying it's the tallest girl, but it's quite established height. And if they if they are there, and then they start to think, oh gosh. Um, and they and they and they want to challenge the young woman or the male. It's a young woman, and they believe through their own stereotypical thinking that the the young woman is going to be aggressive, even mm. though they've been teaching that young person for a long time. They still have that tendency to think, well, you know, you you are going to be aggressive or you're too cool to be cool. You're too cool to be schooled, which is a kind of a terminology. Mm-hmm. The young person may not even know what they're talking about because they're not that type of person. They may have come from a different background to the, to the, to the students this teacher's taught before, but they're lumping everybody together and, and it's because they're trying to make sense of it themselves. They think, well, this, this student will react in this particular way. And if they don't, they then get concerned and they profile them to act that way. And then there's a backlash because the students say, well, actually, I'm not like that, sir. Yes. Yeah. And then they say, well, you, well, why are you asking me back then? <laughs> and they say, well, I'm just trying to tell you that that's not me. And so in the end, the child goes inwardly. And trying to explain that to a school, they don't know how to do that because they don't know what to do in that position. Because what it's t- looking at then is looking at how do those teachers start to really understand their own biases and the impact of those biases? Because mm. many of the children which have those kind of experiences, it can take 10 years or more mm. for them to get over their experience in school because they've learned to dumb, dumb themselves down and to try and shrink to not be noticeable and not to... Uh, engage mm. with those whole issues around discrimination. That's interesting. One of the themes that's come out in some of the conversations I had lately about school, and I, I fear it's true, is that schools can do an awful lot of harm. And the idea that people, I've, I've encountered students many times who have said to me, well, I wasn't very good at school. Or the thing about me is that school wasn't for me. And I think, well, I, I feel that you've internalised your own failure when it was really a school failure. Some, some, there was something about school which convinced you when you left that you'd failed, and that was not your problem in a way, and that was that was because it was competitive, because there were certain very narrow descriptions of what success was. Listening for what you just said though, there is curious that that sense in which 
racial profiling can draw upon very malign ideas of sort of what what you know the the idea that uh, I've, I've I've heard it described how black women in hospital won't have their complaints listened to because it's an there's a kind of assumption that well you're going to complain as a culture a cultural profiling but also something even older and more unpleasant the idea that they black people don't feel pain the same way <laughs> or that they are more emotional just in a, in a kind of deterministic sort of way yeah when you say to teachers or we might be saying to teachers now how can you what you if you think to yourself well i'm i'm trying i'm going to try to be aware of this what are the strategies for the teacher and of course what are the strategies for the student you've talked about yeah, i think yeah. that's a really good point actually i mean i think let's go back slightly yeah and i quite like what you did there with the the, the kind of analogy there of the nhs and when you look at a school and you look at a child in a school, if the child doesn't cry and shout and scream and stamp and say, well, actually, it's not fair and all this kind of stuff and this pressure, that child then will then say, well, actually, why aren't you crying? Look at the mark you've got. You should be extremely upset. And if the child doesn't get upset and they kind of think, OK, I recognise I've got a bad mark, um, I'll do better. They then think that perhaps they then whip up this kind of thinking where well, the person must be more kind of, what's the word, um, uh, aloof, or they may be um, not an arrogant, because arrogant wouldn't fit with somebody, which they think. They would just think basically just being, you know, I don't know, careful, careless um, and not taking things seriously um, because they're not showing any emotion and they're not showing any tears. So that same child will come home to their parent or some of their parents and say, well, you know, they expected me to cry, mum. Now, speaking to a black woman, their parent will say, well, why would you cry? What's there to cry about? OK, you didn't get the grade, but we then look at how we can make that grade better. The strategies for, for schools, they need to flip. The, this is what's in my book. They need to flip the script and change the narrative. Now, if they if they um, flip the script and change the narrative, it means they have to really think about what's going on and why are they doing this? What is it which is triggering? Because the young children, and I say young up until 18, till they go to wherever they're going, is triggering something with inside that adult, which is the teacher, the educator, to make them react like this. And that's when they've got to, and the school's got to do some work to be able to work with the, with the, um, with the educators, for them to really kind of understand themselves. And I think it's about, you need to know who you are. If you know who you are, you can start to kind of work on it instead of keep pointing to the other. With the child, the child needs to be able to um, establish vocabulary to be able to challenge and work, work and push back. And push back in a way that the school enables the pushback I'm not saying push back with a, you know, with, with a lot of aggression or anything like that. I'm saying push back so that um, uh, it becomes a healthy place for the child to um, grow and also understand that um, what's happening there is wrong. Because most of them will swallow it, as you said before. They swallow it and internalise it because they don't want to put, they don't want to put anything on it. They just think, well, I, I can't do, I don't want to get involved with this. It's too painful. And so when the schools set up, for example, Caribbean societies, African-Caribbean societies, and then get upset that the children don't attend, which are African-Caribbean, they have to take a step back and say, well, why wouldn't they attend? Why would they attend? But they're not feeling, um, they're actually not feeling um, safe. And if they're not feeling safe to attend these, they're not mm. going to go because they don't want to be exposed and also... What happens when they do attend? So it's those those types of things. The schools have got to really think about it, and that's why I say they've got to they've got to make that flip, flip the script and change the narrative, mm. and then you look at the different strategies around what you do to be able to flip the script and change the narrative. That's interesting, and, it, and of that's course number, that's chapter eight in my book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if <laughs> yeah. 
flipping the script and changing the narrative. And of course, the school says, well, we've done that. We read chapter eight and uh, here's the Afro-Caribbean Society. And it's uh, so tick that box. And you said, well, that's in a sense what you did that for. You said, well, we've got an Afro-Caribbean Society or we've got a or we've got a um, a race, racial awareness week or something. And that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about something fundamental to the to, to the student that empowers them. Exactly. Have you have you seen good practice in terms of coaching and mentoring and so on that actually yes. does puts it in the hands of the students? Yeah, exactly. This, you, you, the student needs to understand how to do critical thinking, how to question. Mm-hmm. Many students don't question. They've got to ask the questions. They need to say, "So, John, so why did you do that?" And John might think, "Well, oh, hang on a moment." No one's asked me that. I'm the teacher. Why are you asking me that? Because I wanted to ask you, John, you know, why did you do that to me? That, how do you think that made me feel? So, for example, I use a personal statement like my daughter. Um, she was with a group of, there's not many people in the school she was at. And there was a group of about five of them, five people. There's only about 10 in the whole year group of black. And they were in a group. And they were and um, they were in the um, school grounds. So one of the teachers came up to them and said, "What are you all doing in a gang? What do you mean in a gang? This is this is the class. This is the year group. There's only ten of them anyway." And so they pushed back and said, "Why did you say that? How did you think that made us feel?" But they they've said that because they felt confident enough to say that. And plus, they're year twelve young people, year thirteen, whatever. So they kind of pushed back and said, "Why did you say that? That didn't. That was not pleasant, or that wasn't. That wasn't what, what you need to say." Now, of course, the the, the the teachers themselves may then go back and think, "Well, you know, you're being really rude, or whatever you are. How dare you, insolent individuals?" You know. Um, so what's worked well in in a, in some schools, they're really taking this seriously because they are looking at safe spaces, and they are also looking at um, safeguarding. Because after the situation, and if not before, where the adultification with a young girl who was stri- uh, strip searched in a school, in, 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 a, in a London school, that should never have happened. She was 15. And that's another issue. Why would, you, why would a young 15-year-old who is a school child, because she's still a child, be subjected to that in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a school which is meant to be safe for young people? she's subjected to that so I think people are starting to to look at this more but also when the discussion came up when um the killing of George Floyd and everybody wanted to do something to do with race and I know for private schools letters were sent to over 250 private schools in the southeast to the head teachers and saying I was a child which was racially profiled and abused in school of one of your private schools to all the head teachers what are you going to do for that next child who looks like me and the school started to do stuff around it and that's private schools in the public sector is it you know in in our public schools you know which are not private it becomes a different discussion because unfortunately um the rhetoric of the government doesn't seem to understand or want to understand that there's any difference between the experiences of black children in school and white children in school. They will focus their time and say, well, it's all about the white working class. Well, actually, 85% of this country is white working class. They're absolutely not working class, but are white. That's, that's absolutely right. But if you're working class or, or not working class, the one thing which you've got in common is you've got a pass and your pass is your colour. So even if you're uneducated and you turn up nicely dressed in a suit or whatever it is, and after you go with the confidence of whiteness, you can kind of get two steps forward until they realise that you've made, you, you, you haven't really got those qualifications or anything else. But if you're a black young person and you turn up scrubbed up in a suit, you've got other things, you've got bigger barriers to face because you've got to get to that door with your colour before anything else. And, that, and, that's, and that's the bit, I think, which is the, the tricky bit and the, and the knotty bit which we don't want to talk about, and, it's, and it is very sophisticated, and it's also very overt. 
So there's a whole range of different things happening there. Mm. The word that the phrase you've used, sophisticated racism, I've heard. I mean, everyday sexism, everyday racism. I could make a, I could make a guess at the kinds of things that people experience when they're followed around by a security guard in a shop, or such and such. The sort of things exper- people experience in the street. What do you mean by the term sophisticated racism? I'm, I guess we've touched on it a bit just from what you were just saying. Yes, we have. It's disin- it's it's um, it's uh, degenerous, you know, kind of um, disingenuous uh, policies which are put in place to ensure that we do all our equality stuff. It's the kind of oh, come and sit next to me, Victoria. I really want to hear more about you. So you become the pet. You become the pet, and then you become the threat. So you become the pet because you're sitting around the table and they think, yes, we wanted somebody like you. And then all of a sudden you become the threat. So it's really um, the kind of uh, insinuous, incestuous kind of stuff, which we, we, we're very good at in the English way of doing things. Um, you think they're actually being your friend, but they're not being your friend at all. Yes. It's that ghastly stuff. You yeah, know what I mean? It's that ghastly we're, stuff. We're taking, the, we're taking a picture for the school prospectus and uh, by the way could you just stand in the foreground <laughs> why me <laughs> thank you exactly yeah. and don't answer back yeah because you know and and also why is your why you know why are your, you know your skirt is very short isn't it uh well my sir my legs are very long so the school uniform doesn't fit me oh well you know the, the, you know i don't know why da, 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 da. exactly um, there's a whole range of different things around sophisticated. It's sophisticated because it's not, it's kind of um, subtle, but it's more than subtle. It's subtle and it's murky. And the reason that the picture of the book has got a black swan on the front, it's about the water. The water is murky. And so that's the sophisticated aspect because if it's, if it's overt racism, we can all deal with that. If it's kind of covert and you know it's covered up, we can deal with that. But it's the murky stuff we don't want to talk about. It's that type of stuff. It's and, and that's a bit which we we haven't talked about before. And I'm that's what I'm writing about. And within that, I talk about and I've called it WWS, which is called White Women Syndrome. And it's pushing it further than white white fragility. is just two weeks away. Are you ready to join 30,000 attendees, 600 plus exhibitors on seven content stages from 120 countries and see Louis Theroux, Dame Darcy Bustle, Jason Arday, Laurel Carner, Baroness Luella Benjamin, Dan Fitzpatrick, Mr. P.I.C.T. and so much more. I might need to bring my trainers. The best part? Educators go free. Get your ticket now at uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the EtonX curriculum in your school for free. Visit EtonX.com to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. 
is in the news again according to the BBC News website. This time the story is about the pass rate for GCSE resits in the subject. November results show 22.9% of maths entries were marked at Grade 4 or above, down from 24.9% in 2022 and 26.9% in 2019. In contrast, the pass rates for GCSE English resits rose to 40.3%, up from 38% in 2022 and 32.3% in 2019. In England, under-18s must retake the GCSE in English and Maths if they did not achieve a minimum of Grade 4. The resits for the recent November series were marked, like the summer 2023 exams, back in line with the pre-pandemic levels. Prior to the exams, some colleges reported they were having to expand class sizes and hire additional exam space to cope with rising numbers of pupils retaking the two subjects. Those sitting the subjects in November are only a subset of the total resitting, as some pupils will not take the tests until the summer. The fall in the maths pass rate comes after government announced plans to replace A-level and T-level qualifications with a new advanced British standard, which would include some English and maths up to the age of 18. Whilst the arrival of the new Ofsted chief made many headlines across media outlets, Schools Week focused on tech issues which prevented many inspectors from accessing training. All inspectors working in schools, FE, social care and early years were due to attend mental health awareness training led by Sir Martin Oliver, which was around 3,000 staff. However, it was announced that Ofsted had experienced some technical issues and that fewer than 1,000 inspectors were able to actually access the online sessions. Ofsted did say that a recording was available so those not able to attend would watch it back. Inspections, paused for the start of the new term, will resume on the 22nd of January. They were not paused in early years settings. Attendance is in the news again and looks set to be a key focus for all political parties as a general election approaches. In a recent speech to the Centre for Social Justice, Shadow Minister for Education Bridget Phillipson said Labour would pass a law to register and count the children taught at home, adding that it was important that local authorities know where children not in school are. Plans also included setting up more breakfast clubs. The current government has proposed similar in its schools bill, but this and many other aspects were abandoned at a later date. However, New attendance hubs are being launched in London to help reduce persistent absence. The DFA has chosen nine schools with excellent attendance rates to share ideas with others across England. An advertising campaign called Moments Matter Attendance Counts was also launched. Although some aspects drew criticism from some quarters concerned that the campaign sought to minimise mental health issues. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan said Tackling attendance is my number one priority. In Wales, teachers at a high school are striking over poor behaviour of pupils and NASUWT in Wales say there are now six schools in dispute over classroom safety. Teachers in Scotland have also raised concerns about deteriorating behaviours. The TES magazine featured an article by Bill Rogers, behaviour consultant, university lecturer and author. The article focuses on possible reasons for what teachers report as deteriorating behaviours in schools and strategies to improve things. These include focusing on describing and insisting on the behaviours needed for all to learn. Also using clear assertive language and calling pupils to account for their behaviour. The full article is available online. Finally, the BBC has run an article on the news website focusing on how children and adults can stay healthy at the start of the new term. Officially, January marks the start of the spring term, but winter bugs like norovirus and flu are likely around for several months yet. The article focuses on five top tips. Regular hand washing, regular cleaning of high contact areas, staying at home for serious illnesses such as high fever, vomiting or diarrhoea, vaccinations where necessary or applicable, and using the NHS online services to keep informed or to seek advice. Hopefully, a healthy new year will lead to a happy start to the spring term. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox.
Friday morning break on Teachers Talk Radio with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Dr. Victoria Shuinmi, Associate Professor at the University College London. We are discussing sophisticated and everyday racism. the term um, lot, the missing white woman syndrome which is where a a young woman goes missing who's white and so on and blonde or whatever and they say well there's a, there's a big outcry and uh, not the case this is particularly in the United States maybe but but also in other countries where there'd be an assumption about uh, black women go missing <laughs> where young white women don't uh, so we have a different response to those things but when you say white woman syndrome, you mean something more general? I do indeed. And it's based on um, the big house. I call it the big house, which is a plantation house. And it's based on the, the, the interplay with, between black women and white women in the big house. And the black, black house, uh, the big house I talk about is a plantation house. And so if we think about what went on there, white women were you know, the high up head of the house with their plantation husband or father, whoever it was who owned the house. And so the, the, the black women were being brutalised by the white men, whoever they were. And, and, it, and it happens to be the plantation owner's wife, uh, husband, whatever it is. And so it built up this whole resentfulness between the white woman and the black woman. Because when the black woman was uh, brought into the house, or they were brought into the house because they happened to be the, the, the illegitimate child from this plantation owner, white plantation owner, and, they, and, the, and the white woman had to look after that child or bring in the house to be able to become a slave, whatever. She was left, the white woman was left without being serviced, if I may say so. And so she looked to the black male who then was found themselves in a situation that they were in the house to be part of the white woman's accessory. And many of them were murdered because they're found, you know, in, in compromising situations with the white woman. And so what that's built up is this tension between white women and black women and what's actually going on. And that takes place in the workplace. So the white woman's syndrome is, well, we're the queen bee. So if you're coming into our school or workplace and we want to talk about women and what happens is they think well actually the only women in this place is me we're not sharing that resource because you can go over there to do race you don't need to come over here to do gender because we're doing the gender you can do the race and so what happens is you get this slithering of the white women are doing gender the black men are doing race so what do black what do black women do they're not linked into anything and so you have this kind of pushback by the black women who are saying well actually you know what about me hence the me too hashtag me too was about black women what about me what about our pain and and the white women will then do it's then it comes into the 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 tears the kind of uh, defensiveness and a whole range of other things which they display you know, people call the word Karen and what that means and all those types of things kind of pulled together is white women's syndrome. And I've kind of identified that and talked to my old, my youngest daughter about that, just being at school. And she laughed. And I said, why are you laughing? Because she said, I, can under I understand it straight away. Talk to my students about it. They say, we get that, miss. It's absolutely right, Dr. V. We know <laughs> what we're talking about just within seconds. So there's not much explanation when you're when you are one of those people and you're thinking, oh my god, I get it straight away. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that that reaction of recognition of saying, yeah, I see that, and the and the i the, the the kind of um the idea that the white woman or, or white woman syndrome is the claiming of ownership over a particular field, in this case, exactly. the, being a woman. <laughs> That's something we yeah. we own. You know, keep away from exactly. this. Exactly. You, kind of, you kind of think to yourself. 
And you don't get that kind of discussion because maybe because men look at things, do things slightly different. So your men, men are men. So whether you're Chinese man, Asian man, black man, white man, you are men. All right? There is this, you're a man. So once you get into the house, I call the house as an analogy of, you know, the workplace. Once you get into the workplace, the black male will get into the workplace and they will progress. In the majority, they will progress. The black woman getting in the workplace will get in and get out. So they get in and then they get out, which is a pet, the pet to threat. So they get in as a pet and then they come out as a threat because, oh, you're too kind of, that's not what we want type person. Or, you know, look what I did. I, you know, John put, I'm using you, John. Yeah. You, you know, put, I put my, I put my head on the block for you. And now look what you've done. You've upset mm-hmm. the whole of the, the governance. You've upset everybody, the head teachers, everybody else, because look what you've turned out to be. You're an ungrateful individual. And so you've got that kind of stuff. Yeah, going on as an well. expectation yeah. that you'll fulfill a certain role. And that was almost, you know, person. and yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, that must so historically that must have been a, that was a, I think that was a tension in the uh, in the kind of mid in the nineteen sixties, nineteen fifties, sixties, a feminism movement where a lot of the early feminists were tended to be, you know, American middle class white women who were complaining about being bored at home during the day, and that wasn't really the experience, you know, of of women generally uh, outside exactly. their own class. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're absolutely right. And and even Fed, you know, W D W D um, W B uh, Du Bois in the 18th century, late 18th century, talked about feminism, and said that for feminism to really work, white women have got to reach out to black women. But they didn't. They reached out to black men. They reached out to black men, not white women, because white because black women became a threat to white women. Because white women are seen as the feminine type, you know, the, they, 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 they're kind of the, the eye of femininity, whereas black women are seen. And there was an article just last week by um, Serena Williams, and it calls all how they describe her as a feminine character. And this fits back to school, because if a school thinks a, little, a 12-year-old young white girl or young Asian girl is seen as, oh, they're, you know, they're kind of uh, very feminine, they're very kind of petite, angelic, etc. Whereas a young black girl could be twice their height, more developed as a young person. And I think, well, you know, they don't identify them as a woman. They identify them as a woman as against a child. And that's the difficulty bit. That's the difficult, it's, you know, it's, and, and it's something which I was always pushing in Charlotte's school, my daughter's called Charlotte, where she is six foot three. And I'd always say to the school, she is a child in the school who is six foot three. No matter if she's six foot three or not, she is a child of 16 or 17. Yes. And yes. that's the issue. Yeah. And that's difficult for them to understand because they think, well, yes, but she's big. Yeah, well, she's a big child. Yeah. Yes, and what you're describing there is almost a kind of uh, willful ignorance, uh, failure to read the sort of cultural signifiers of childhood, other than beyond a narrow stereotype. So it's a form of of unconscious bias and stereotyping and profiling, which was brutally illustrated by the case of Child Q in Hackney, uh, I think it was last year or the year before, who was a 15-year-old girl strip searched by metropolitan police officers female officers in school searching for drugs which she wasn't carrying there's a whole series of stereotypes and profiles going on there which you're describing which i think itself relates to a a confusion our society has with childhood generally and how to define it i'd like to move the discussion on in a way now to to another form of, of racism it is really racism and that is the the sorts of things we teach in schools and the focus on a very Western ideas of civilization, a very Eurocentric castles and kings kind of teaching of history. I remember some years ago teaching at a school, uh, this was in the 1990s, where a large part of the curriculum 
for very well-meaning reasons, was focusing on apartheid in South Africa. So this must have been actually the 1980s. And apartheid in South Africa was used as a means of exploring racism. But to students, it was also uh, a representation of black people as victims. So in one sense, black people are written out of history. And of course, in another way, they're written into history as the victims of white oppression, which both narratives are somewhat problematic and a form of stereotyping and profiles. Well, stereotyping. Um, my daughters are very, I suppose, fortunate because they've got an academic mother and we travel a lot. And I think travelling opens your mind to different things. I mean, my youngest one is doing architecture, so she's awfully looking at castles and all things like that. But she's fascinated about buildings. And, 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 I, and I, think it, I think the dichotomy we've got at the moment is that it's a homogenous group of people when it comes to subject area. And I think it perhaps also is to do with the emotional development of a child. Because some children will be very interested in and understand the connection from understanding history from the 17th century, 16th century, and what that looks like right up to now, where well, some children won't, won't understand that or won't even be able to engage with it because they can't see the here and now because they just think, well, actually, I want to know about what, what, what was the history around me? What was the history about black people in my, in my particular area? And that's when they may go backwards, go backwards and see the history after they understood themselves. I don't know. I think it's a difficult one. I don't know how to deal with it, because I didn't go to a school, I went to a school which I was the only black child. Um, I am, I suppose the only thing I would say is that I do get rather prickly when um, a child's homework, and I, and, I, and I can really be honest about this, is so the benefits of a slave. Because hmm. that's when I kind of think, well, there's no benefits, so send it back to the teacher. <laughs> you know, and then the child says, well, actually, that's my homework. I've got to do my homework. And I was saying, yeah, but there's no homework. That, that's the answer. So I think I can understand the child saying, well, it doesn't relate to me. But that can be for every subject, whether it's maths or English, geography, sciences. It may not, do, it may not benefit them. But I think the bit which is, which is more um, progressive is being able to identify scientists and whoever who've also developed knowledge which aren't white i think that's the bit that's the bit itself because you know instead of thinking that all the inventors were white people all the people who invented or found out about the world were white which we know is not true anyway mm -hmm. i think that's the bit that i think that that's the bit itself yes it's that um thing i've heard uh, how research was carried out with uh, showing pictures of, pe of people in various professions to school students and they show a man in a white coat and they say well that's a doctor or a scientist and they show a woman in a white coat and they say there's a woman dressed up as a doctor or a scientist it's because exactly. you know they're putting on that role so we can't quite believe they're the proper one <laughs> that's not it's, exactly and parents think that as well they come into the school and it happens here people say so who are you i said well yeah it's the question i was going to ask you who are you you know to me. they say oh you know and they start saying i've been one student last week was saying them um how do i how do i fill my bottle up i said i have no idea I suggest you ask somebody to ask you how to fill the bottle up, not me, because I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. And he's looking at me thinking, oh, I thought you'd know. Well, why would I know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> the, uh, one of the features of education right the way through, you know, in, in, in the UK, in, in Okay, ever since the Enlightenment, really, is that there are all, there was two sides to an argument that you know the cornerstone of most academic research is somehow find, most sorry academic examining is that up to A level is you'll have to find the balance of sides. So no wonder if the student if the, if you're looking at slavery, the, the teacher feels compelled to say, well, uh, let's look at the other side, the maybe the benefits of slavery and so on, or the British Empire. Let's look at the benefits of the British Empire. Oh, so in a sense that that necessity to try and balance which is th thought of as objective sort of neutralizes the issue so it's, it becomes an academic yeah, issue there are always two sides to everything isn't there exactly but there's no real benefit to, to to um to slavery like there's no there's no real benefit to anything which is oppresses people in a way which has been oppressed you know 
Um, and I think that's the bit which um, I think I, I do believe that a lot of young young children now it's it's very different. I think they are, in some ways, they're becoming more acutely aware of things, but some of their resources of understanding acute awareness is not through um, it's, it's you know using um, various social media, and um, I'm very pleased to say that my daughter is now using a lot of books and is reading a lot of books yeah. as against just yeah. just using TikTok and all whatever else. I'm very impressed with her. Um, she said she was a secret reader. She didn't <laughs> want to tell me she was reading books, <laughs> but she set up a book club now with some of her friends. Oh, why didn't you want to say she because book reading was a bit uncool or because it was? Uh... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she went to an academic conference with me just about three years ago and stood in front of all the colleagues which I knew and said, books should be banned and burnt. And I was so upset. I was thinking, but I didn't say that to her. I just looked at her and I was thinking, oh my gosh, what's happened to this child? <laughs> and then about a year later, she said that she was, um, uh, I'd been a secret reader. Ah, oh, right, okay, yeah. And it was TikTok which which encouraged her to read because there was all these books on TikTok recommending these books. So she thought, let me have a take, let me have a look at some of these. And since then, the last couple of years, she's been a, a, she's a ferocious reader, reading you know three, four books a week. Mm. Well, How that, exciting is that? They're very exciting, and and it's a sort of another side of the. If you could, it's easy to critique uh, TikTok as a waste of time or you know mental chewing gum and such like. There's also all sorts of things on the internet exactly. and on TikTok that lead you in directions, rabbit holes, which you then think, well, I'll find more about that exactly. in a book. If, and they're not easy yeah. books. They're complex books she's reading, which is yeah. really good. Yeah. If we were having this conversation, I, I, I hope that if out there the teachers are going, well, I wouldn't ever set a class, the benefits of slavery. I'm, you know, <laughs> that's ridiculous. But if I were having this conversation in the United States, and said, well, we need to be more critically aware. Well, I think people say, ah, now you're talking critical race theory. And critical race theory is teaching white people to feel guilty for being white and for being American, uh, and black people uh, that that they they should you know, they should they shouldn't be they shouldn't feel they're American or should feel that they should uh, dislike or hate. You know, in other words, you're sowing you're sowing um, the seeds of social division. Yeah, that's probably well, an issue in America, not so much here. Yeah, I mean, I, um, critical race theory isn't teaching white people to feel guilty at all. And I think that's the myth which people mm. need to unpack. And I, I do lead on um, a module which um, the students say is transformational, and it's called Sociology of Race and um, Education. And um, CRT is, is, is talked about within that class, and so mm. is black feminism. And there's no, there's no teaching of any white person being taught to be guilty at mm. all. What it's doing, it's it's talking about um, that within this that racism is systemic within the fabrics of policies and structures, etc. And it's how we then start to um, explore that, unpack that, and it, and it's unpacked by the, some of the stories which are being said as well. And I, and I think that's a, that's the point. So I do want to ensure that it's not about teaching white people to be um, um, to, to feel guilty at all. That's just a that's just a um, a myth which has been flying around. That's, that's not what it is. Mm. It's about really understanding the power about power and struggles around power. Yeah, it is a it is a fascinating topic, and we're coming to the end now. So I'll I've got one last direction to go in, <laughs> and that is I know you've done some work besides looking at the experience of, of of racism in various forms. You also looked at how this impacts on people's lives when they leave school, particularly black women as they progress or don't progress. Is part of the problem, and here's an intersectionality between class and race, is the low expectations that schools might leave, maybe intentionally, unintentionally, with students. Uh, Lee Elliott Major, the professor of social mobility, has talked about from his working class background perception of himself in this in the uh, imposter syndrome that he that he's a professor at university but somehow feels he's not quite a real professor at university and this carries him into life. Uh, this must be true as well with a sense in which um, black people aren't this or aren't that. There must be a series of self-imposed limits. That embedded within school is a sense of failure that people, or a sense of 
disadvantage or whatever that people carry on into life uh, that means that black women do not succeed. And then out there in the world, in the, in the world of adult education and so on, how do you mentor black adults and students in higher education to overcome that, that legacy or that feeling, that self-esteem they may be lacking? Yeah, that's a very good one. So very, very quickly. So one of, one of the aspects is suffering. It's called suffering in silence. And I wrote, write about that, suffering in silence. And the experience as a black woman in the workplace is a really important point. Because they learn to suffer in silence, meaning that they learn to kind of hold it inside. And holding it inside can trigger a lot of things. It can trigger mental health issues. It can trigger severe illnesses. And it can trigger trigger the fact of the lack of belonging and um, loneliness and what that means. And it also can mean that you want to assimilate into whiteness. And your assimilation leads to a loss of identity. And that loss of identity means that you never really be, you never become your authentic self because internally you internalize the whiteness to be able to be something else. And so you never, you're never happy with yourself. The most important thing is to be able to teach young people to be authentic, teach women, uh, black women to be authentic. Mentoring, there does need to be mentoring. I don't know whether it's mentoring and a mixture of coaching or whether it's coaching with a mixture of mentoring. But it's being able to identify good quality coaches stroke mentors who understand the barriers and not become white saviors or uneducated allies or just disingenuous um, support mechanisms for people who don't actually need the support. What they actually need is access to opportunities and recognition for what they bring to the table. And I think that's the bit. I mean, and, and a, a young black woman will come into the place full of confidence, and they bought them for them, for their confidence. And then a year or so later, you think, oh, what's happened to you? And they're crumpled. And they become, you know, really something which, you know, they become a shadow of themselves. And that's actually happening in real life. And so it's about, I think there needs to be coaching and mentoring for the people which are the employers who are taking on people to come to make the place more inclusive. They need to be coached to be able to understand and support people which are in those positions, who are coming into the positions. When they, come, when they step into the big house, they need to understand how to operate in the big house. I grew up in the big house, so I mean, <laughs> and all the, all the trimmings of, of upper class and all that kind of stuff it's not helpful but yeah thank you so much for this conversation thank you for thank you for being so generous with your time i'm sure you've got very busy and not least you must now be starting to feel a certain nervousness towards your your performance (laughs) so good luck with that and thank you thank you so much thank you Bring this to an end this week's episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week was Dr. Victoria Shewanby, Associate Professor at the University College of London. We discussed everyday racism and sophisticated racism. Dr. Shewanby has written a range of articles and books, including her book, Understanding and Managing Sophisticated and Everyday Racism, Implications for Black Education and Work. She's also written articles you can find online, Visible, Invisible Black Women in Higher Education, Black Women and Inequality in the Workplace. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and you can find it again on Spotify and other platforms, including the Teachers Talk Radio site. Thank you for listening. Listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.